Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Great to be spend the Sabbath again together. It was a long week, I think. Deacon Jan said it's been a long week. I agree with him. It's nice to be through it together, though, and worship together on the Sabbath day here. We are in the still in the third month. We're in day 23, and we're 96 days until the Feast of Trumpets. Anyone catch my mistake? Eva caught it. I said the 96 days until Pentecost. Thank you for reading it, everybody. <laughs> just kidding. Got a, got a couple of comments that people noticed the mistake. Maybe we'll throw mistakes in from time to time just to see. Fantley Roy Bean Jr. was born in 1825 in the northwest corner of Kentucky near the Ohio border. He was the youngest son of five. There were four boys and one girl born to a poor family in northern Kentucky. It was a normal 1800s poor life that he grew up with. When he was 16, he left for New Orleans to seek out work. And as was customary in those days for a lot of people, there was a bit of a Wild West existence, and he certainly got into trouble with the law at, at a young age. And from New Orleans, he headed west into Texas to seek out one of his brothers who was living there at the time. And while there, was able to serve with his brother in the Mexican-American War. Uh, once that war was finished, he was got into the trading post business, on the Mexican side of the Texas border, but continued to get into plenty of trouble with the law. That was something that troubled him for much of his young life. Once he had worn out his welcome with the local law establishments, he headed, continued to head west, spent some time in New Mexico, Arizona, eventually headed to California, where he caught up with another one of his brothers, Joshua, who ended up being the first mayor of the city of San Diego. He continued to live a life of crime in that area. Again, the wild, the typical Wild West that you would have seen on TV and in movies was one that he lived. He moved his way back into Texas during the Civil War to serve with the Confederate Army. Upon the conclusion of that, he married, had four children with his wife, but his lifestyle led to a very tumultuous marriage. He certainly wasn't the positive, God-fearing provider that that uh, we, we hope men to be. Into the late 1870s and 1880s, he finally got into the saloon business at various points and eventually settled in a small tent city called Vinegardoon in West Texas, right along the Mexican border of the, the Pecos River. In what is now present day, you likely may have heard of the city of Del Rio, Texas. That's where, about where this was. And as the local saloon keeper in this small town, it became a stopping point as people were passing through. Much like he spent much of his life traveling east and west, this little tent city developed into a small town. And he became the self-appointed judge of the town. He was known, made himself known as a self, self-titled the Law West of the Pecos. Now Hollywood has fictionalized much of his life. There was a movie in the 1940s called The Westerner that was based on his life. There was a TV series in the 
1950s, about 1956 to 59, that also talked talk about his life, starred Edgar Buchanan as Roy B. And then there was a humorous spaghetti western in 1972 starring Paul Newman called The Life and Times of Judge Roy B. And of course it was fictionalized based on a, the real account of this, this gentleman, Roy B. And it's a scene from this movie that I'd like to draw your attention to. After another day of executing his brand of justice, he had come into town as a criminal, set up shop and opened up a little saloon, labeled himself as Judge Roy Bean, the, the law in town. There, had, there was no court within 200 miles of his little tent city. And he was free to establish the law and, and, and in that little town. And as he, after another day of executing his brand of justice, which was killing people who didn't abide by the law as he saw it, a reverend was, in, was nearby and took him to task for what he did. And the reverend questioned who he was, and he identified himself as Roy Bean, Judge Roy Bean, the law west of the Pecos. And the reverend asked him, what qualifies you as such? And his response in the movie was, I know the law, for I have spent my entire life in its flagrant disregard. How well do you know the law? Could you recite it? Could you render decisions based on it? We know that we are to be kings and priests in the kingdom of God, and part of this life is about learning God's way of life. Can you, are you able to render decisions based on it? Would you have been one of the ones that Moses would have chosen to help him out to render decisions based on the laws they, as they were getting to know it? How about able to teach it? Are you able to teach the law? Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6. It sounds like a, a large question to ask. Do you know the law? And I don't mean for it to sound so overwhelming, although when it's put in that context, it does sound somewhat overwhelming. But it's not meant to be that way, and we'll see that. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where I'd like to begin. As Moses is re-revealing or re-uttering the Torah, the law, to the second generation of Israelites as they're just on the east side of the Jordan before God will allow them, the second generation along with Joshua and Caleb, to proceed across the Jordan into the promised land. And we pick it up in verse 6. Now let's go back to verse 1. Now this is the commandment. And these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. So God passed this law through Moses to teach them so that they could keep it. That you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And you shall not only keep them, 
But you shall diligently teach them to your children, and you shall talk of them when you are sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This seems rather overwhelming. This isn't just having to memorize Ten Commandments. This is throughout the, your entire life, throughout your entire day. When you, walk, when you walk, when you're sitting with your friends, you talk about it. When you're walking, uh, by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Let's go forward to Ezekiel chapter 44 and see comments through the prophet Ezekiel. This wasn't just a task given to ancient Israel. Looking forward, Ezekiel writes, and they shall, verse 23, verse 23 of Ezekiel 44, and they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed meetings, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. He's, of course, talking here about the but what laws and the requirements of the priesthood, but we know as we work through this life and head for that first resurrection that Pastor Adrian was talking about, that we all look forward to, that we will, of course, be kings and priests in the kingdom of God. So as kings and priests in the future, we shall teach people the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. And in controversy, they, or we, shall stand as judges, and judge it according to his judgments, to God's judgments. And we shall keep his laws and his statutes in all his appointed meetings, and we shall hallow his Sabbaths. The law is a subject that has been controversial and misunderstood. Is it simply a set of rules that God set up for a specific group of people to follow many, many years ago? Are they still valid today? Are all the laws still valid today? Are some of the laws still valid today? Do we need to document them? If so, which ones are still valid today? And how do we know? These are all very, very valid questions. But it is premature to answer them without understanding a key point of God's law. And that's what I'd like to do today. Rather than answer all of those little bitty questions, I would like to take a look at the law from the perspective of King David and lay a foundation for what the law really is, so that we're considering the law as we continue to work through this way of life, as we have new people come in. It was interesting today to talk to Ray, and I know she's shared this story last week with many of you about her, her as she leaves, or as she's understanding the Sabbath and working with her current, her current pastor and, and, and understanding that they believe the law has been done away, but has it really been done away? Before we get to all of those conversations, it's important to understand the law from the perspective of King David. And it will be interesting as we do that here today. So again, rather than take a look at God's law from a finite and minute perspective, I'd like to take a look at a deeper understanding that King David had. Remember, King David was a man after God's own heart. And he had a much deeper understanding, much like the Apostle Paul, 
who had a deeper understanding of what Christianity really was, this way of life, than most of his peers. Paul saw it from a perspective that very few saw. And God used Paul to bring greater light to his message of salvation. And Paul saw things from a paradigm most could not. And we would not have the deep meaning of this new covenant if it were not for Paul. Similarly, King David, a man after God's own heart, as we know Scripture to say, understood the law from a perspective that his peers did not. And we can gain a lot of understanding and calmness and peace in understanding what God's law really is by seeing it from King David's perspective. And we're blessed to have his writings preserved for us today. So today, let's take a look at the law through the eyes of the psalmist. And in doing so, let's come to a deeper understanding of what God's law really is. Not so much a listing of rules, but rather a way of life. And when we see it in this way, that it's a way of life. It's just a way of life that guides our getting up and our laying down, our coming and our going, our sitting and talking, our walking and talking. Everything from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed. It is a way of life, not simply a list of do's and don'ts. And in doing so, when we understand it, we're better prepared to interact with one another. We're better prepared to be a light to this world. We're better prepared to welcome others into our fellowship. We're better prepared to teach them, to teach our children, to teach each other, and future generations the life that our Creator really had intended for us when 6,000 years ago, He said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and let them be fruitful and multiply. Let them fill the earth and subdue it. So let's start by turning to Proverbs. Rather than turning to the writings of King David, let's turn to the writings of his son and see what he had to say about the impact of God's law in the lives of of human beings. And that's in, let's go to the third chapter of the book of Proverbs. Third chapter of the book of Proverbs. And we'll pick it up in verse 1. We'll start right at the start of chapter 3 of Proverbs. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace, they will add to you. We see the impact here that Solomon is describing the law. We're not to forget it. We're to keep it. And it adds length of days. There's a, there's a positiveness. There's, a, there's a value added to keeping God's law. We are promised length of days a long life, but more importantly, peace, serenity. When life is tough, when the economies go bad, when family situations go bad, when our health goes bad, a life lived keeping God's law brings peace. But where did he learn this? Let's go back to Psalms chapter 19. We read in Deuteronomy and in Ezekiel that it was expected that parents teach their children. Where did Solomon have learned this? We'll pick up where we heard the scripture reading today in verse 7, chapter 19. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Look how many different ways here God describes his law. In fact, he uses in this particular passage six different words to describe his law. He uses the word law, he uses the word testimony, statutes, commandments, judgments, and fear. Sometimes this can be confusing when we're going through the law. Are these laws to be kept? Have they been nailed to the cross? Are these all different types of offerings to be, we don't have a temple, so are we to keep these type of offerings? Are we to do this? Are we to do that? Then when you go through, just in the first five books of the Bible, there's some laws that don't make sense if you were to keep them to the letter. Are they to be kept to the letter? Are, they, are there principles behind certain laws? What are testimonies? What are judgments? What are, are all these various different words? We can sort of understand the confusion sometimes. Is this the moral law or is this the ceremonial law? Are these judgments or all these statutes? No wonder people sometimes get confused. This tells us when we read in the passages we have read so far that God's law is a beautiful thing. And when properly understood, it's as beautiful as the creation that we inhabit. They all point to God's magnificence and his glory. Let's go to Psalms 119. Psalms 119. This obviously the longest chapter in the Bible as it is as it has been kept for us today. Have you ever taken the time to read through this psalm, understand, read what David had to say, meditate on it, pray about it, and look at the deep explanations of God's law through this? David obviously took time to reflect and meditate on the deep, profound meanings of God's law. Let's go to verse 97. And just read this particular verse of this song. These, and I'll get to exp- uh, reminding and explaining what I mean by that in a minute. But verse 97 says, Oh, how love I your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. And I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. And I have not departed from your judgments. For you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. And therefore every I hate every false way. Do you notice the number of different ways God's law is described here? We see testimonies. We see precepts. We see judgments. We see your way, your word. There are, in fact, throughout this psalm, there are eight different ways 
that the law is described. And in the writing of this beautiful poem, this beautiful song, you'll notice, and just by way of reminder, that there's a Hebrew letter at the start of every eight verses. This was called an acrostic poem. This was written in poem style in the Hebrew language. And if you go back to verse 1, the start of Psalms 119, you'll see the letter Aleph, then the letter Beth, then Gimel, then Daleth. We won't go through those. These are the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And the first, as it was written, the first line of each of these stanzas used that letter. So it was like an acrostic poem. The first, every line of the first eight, what we see as the first eight verses, the line in Hebrew started with the letter Aleph. And then the second stanza, every line started with the letter Beth. It was an acrostic poem. But it is done in such a way, this magnificent poem, this beautiful way to talk about God's law, to describe all the inner workings of God's law. And when we read how David described it, it was this thing of beauty that he just that just consumed his life. He thought about it, he meditated, meditated on it. It guided his steps when he woke up and when he laid down. It was a thing of beauty that's much, much deeper than simply a rehashing of bullet points of things that we need to remember to do. So there are eight different words that David used to describe God's law. And it is these eight words that will make up the balance the message. I'd like to go through and to talk about these eight words, what they mean, why God, through David, uses them to describe his law, and what overall impact they have on us, to see that God's law is not just a list of do's and don'ts, not just a bullet point list of things we've got to try to memorize so that we can get through this life and relatively unscathed and get to next Passover and, and, and try to be better than we were this year, but it is an entire way of life that should guide us from the moment we wake up to the time that we lie down. When we get together with our friends, when we're walking by ourselves, when we're with our family, God's law is just his way of life. And it is so vast and expansive and just a, a, a breaking down and a description of his character. When we go back, and we'll do this a little later, we go back to Genesis 1, we see that God's intention was for us to be made in his image and after his likeness. How do we know what God is like? We actually know through his law. And it's much more than just the Ten Commandments. Although those are key and they're a cornerstone of his law, it is much more than just the bullet points that we see of the do this and don't do this. It's an actual establishment of God's character for human beings that are trying to get to know their Father and their Savior and figuring out how to live. You want to know how to live? You want to know how to be made in his image? Let's look at God's law and see this deep impact of what it really is. So the first word that is used in Scripture to describe the law in Hebrew is the word Torah. It's used 25 times in Psalms 119 alone, and 219 times in the Old Testament. And it is often, most often translated as law in your English Bibles. And it, this word Torah specifically refers to the books of Moses. When you see a copy of the Septuagint, which is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Scriptures, it's, you, you've heard of the word Pentateuch. Penta meaning five refers to the five books of Moses. So we look in Psalms 119. Please stick a marker there if you have a marker because we'll be back and forth between Psalms 119 and Psalms 19 quite often during the message. Blessed, verse 1, Psalms 119, are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who walk in the law of the Lord. This law specifically here is talking about the Torah. 
Now, are we blessed when we operate outside of the Torah? Of course. But David here is specifically noting the word Torah in his use of the word law. Because that is, forms the basis for how God reveals himself and his way of life to his people, the first covenant people of Israel. Dropping down to verse 34. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. So as God reveals his law, reveals his Torah to us, and all the impact of what it really means, we gain understanding so that we can keep it, not only just keep it, but observe it with our entire being. There we see this inclination of how it's much more than just a list of things to do and not do, but it is a, an actual way of life. I shall observe it with my whole heart. And the word observe means tend to, protect, or to keep. So this is something that we cherish, we honor, so we value it so deeply that when we come to understand it, we protect it with, with, with our very lives. It becomes a part of who we are. Much like you would honor and cherish a gift that perhaps a spouse or a family member or someone dear to you would give you that you, you protect it. If you've ever been to our house, you've seen some wood carvings that my wife's father has made. And they're in a special spot because we have kids and sometimes we bang things over and things get wrecked. The wood carvings that my father-in-law have made are special and in a spot that they can't be wrecked because they are that important and that cherishable to us. Much more so than those, we need to observe and keep God's law. And not just keep it from an obedience perspective, but keep it. Protect it, understand it, not let go of it, make it a part of who we are. Drop down to verse 44. So shall I keep your law continually forever and ever. And then verse 97, Oh, how love I your law. It is my meditation all the day. Something that can be so much a part of our thoughts that we develop a love for it. That it becomes a, a, an integral part of who we are. When you describe who we are, as we go through this life, part of what should describe who we are is we are keepers of the law. Because it becomes a part of who we what defines us? I'm a father. I'm a, a husband. I'm a son. I'm, I, I'm a boss. I'm a, an employee. I'm a pastor. I'm a brother. A Christian brother. I'm a keeper of God's law. That's what should help define who I am. I'm a keeper of God's law. That we develop a love for it. Similar to the love that we have for one another. And this love described here is the same type of love that we have for a friend. The Torah, this Torah, these, these five books of Moses, was God's overall introduction of himself and his way of life to his first chosen people, to the first people of the covenant. And it was the basis for their covenant. And we see that when we go through some of those, some understanding his, his law, his, his Torah. He tells us that he will protect us told them that he would protect them in return for keeping his way of life that he prescribed to them. Let's go back to chapter 19, the 19th Psalm. As we look at the first descriptive word of God's law being the Torah, those first five books of Moses. We've read verse 7. But let's look at it again. The law of the Lord, the Torah, as it's rendered here, is perfect, 
and it converts the soul. So it is not just a list, again, a bullet point list, but it is something that changes who you are. It converts your character. It changes your inner person. It, it is perfect. So the law can't change. The law is eternal. The law is perfect. It doesn't change. Our understanding may change as we learn and grow and, and become more adept at it and more filled by it and more understanding of it as we use His Holy Spirit to study and to, become, to help it change us. But the law is eternal and it is perfect. And it converts the soul, as King David describes here. It changes who we are. The commandments is the second word that is used by the psalmist to describe parts of his understanding of the law. This word commandments, as it is translated in your English Bibles, is from the word mitzvah in Hebrew, and it is used 22 times in the 119th Psalm, and 181 times throughout all of the Old Testament. And these do specifically refer to the Ten Commandments, the mitzvah. It is, a, it is a specifically referred to the Ten Commandments. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. Before we go there, turn a couple of pages back to the 20th chapter of Exodus. I just want to specifically point out where they are. Remind us where we can find them. The ten, the Decalogue, as we know them to be, the ten foundational commandments that God first introduced himself with to the children of Israel. And we see them listed verbatim 1 through 10 here in Exodus chapter 20. And it is a specific part of the entire overall concept of God's law. It's foundational. It's, uh, we know it to be a, the key cog of God's law. In verse 12 of Exodus 24, after going through chapter 20, which is the actual Ten Commandments, and then expansion upon those Ten Commandments in chapters 21 and 22 and 23, we see, uh, just to set the setting, Back in verse 3 of chapter 24, Moses came and told all the people the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And that became part, the initial part of that covenant agreement that God has placed in front of them, his Ten Commandments, as part of the law that he was then going to expand upon and teach them about. And they committed here to saying, We commit to following this. God has said this, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So these commandments, these mitzvah, as it is described here with the word commandments, are specifically those ten commandments that were written in stone that Moses had twice. Once the one that copy that he broke, and then the second copy that he brought down months later but it is specifically those Ten Commandments that we read about in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 that form the foundation of our covenant with Him. They are part of the law, but they're not all of the law, as we'll see as we expand upon these eight words. But these mitzvah 
form the foundation of this law. Let's go back to Psalms 119 where we focus, continue to focus the message. Pick it up in verse 35. We previously read verse 34, talking about the Torah. Give me understanding. Just repeating where we were in verse 34. Give me understanding and I shall keep your Torah. Indeed, I shall observe your Torah with my whole heart. But make me walk in the paths of your mitzvah. Make me walk in the paths of your commandments. For I delight in it. And notice it's a singular word there. Commandments are plural, but it's a singular plural because the, you can't have one without the other. You can't break down the ten and keep nine. Let's say throw out the fourth. The, the, the Sabbath command. The, all, the, all the commandments come as a, as a unit. There are ten, but it is singular here. David delights in it, the singular mitzvah represented by those ten statements. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Then drop down to verse 166. Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I do keep your commandments. I hope for your salvation, and I keep your mitzvah. I keep your Ten Commandments. Note that David even understood that salvation was separate from law-keeping. He hopes for salvation. He believed himself to be a commandment keeper. But he knew salvation was a separate issue. He couldn't earn his, his weight into salvation. He hoped for salvation. It was the way of life that he, that he as we see, and we'll continue to see how he describes God's law, he, try, he lives a way of life that is one of law-keeping. It doesn't mean he was perfect. That's clear. We've had several messages over the last number of months that have unfortunately itemized his, his sins. So he certainly wasn't a perfect individual, but he was a law keeper because it was the way of life that he followed. It was the path that he chose. And here he says, I hope for your salvation, and I do keep your commandments. I keep the law, and I hope for your salvation. Because he understood they were separate things. Notice, he didn't say, I keep your commandments, and I hope for salvation. He said, I hope for salvation, and I keep your commandments. Because we, he understood you couldn't earn your way into salvation. Commandments weren't a way of earning your way in. It, was, it simply became, because it simply is a way of life. When you become a follower of God, we keep the commandments because that's just who we are. That's just what we do and who we are. It's a small difference, but it's important to understand the purpose of the commandments. By extension, let's go to Matthew 22 and see how the commandments form almost like a centerpiece to the entire concept of God's law. And then from there, there's an even greater emphasis. Matthew 22 We'll pick it up in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, verse 34 of Matthew 22, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all 
the law, and the prophets. So we have the Ten Commandments. We then see them broken down, one to four and and five to ten, on our love for God and our love for man. And while they form the centerpiece, the two form an even deeper centerpiece. And on these two, loving God with all your heart and mind and soul, and loving your fellow man in an equal fa- in a similar fashion, hang all the law and the prophets. Everything stems off of these two great commandments, on which the ten are organized. So the commandments are cr- a critical piece of God's law. Back to the 19th Psalm and see how important and what David saw when he talked specifically about the Ten Commandments and how much of a centerpiece they are. The 19th Psalm. We'll pick up the second half of the verse. Verse 8, second half of verse 8 from Psalms 19. The commandment of the Lord, that's this word mitzvah, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It doesn't say it's a list of what not to do. So just make sure you take these ten things and do your best never to do them. It's something that enlightens our eyes. We can think of the time when, as you were first being called, when light started to go on, and all of a sudden you started to see. It calls to mind... What Job said in Job chapter 42, you can note down Job 42, verse 6. You don't need to turn there, but you can if you'd like. Where he basically had said, I had heard of you, but now I see. I would heard all of this, but all of a sudden, the more, I dis- the more I come to understand your way of life, all of a sudden things are starting to go on I can see. I thought I understood. I would heard the talk of this. I thought I, could, I, thought, I could, thought I could understand this, but now it's like my eyes are open. The, to the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3, God warns them to anoint your eyes with eyesight. Because even as Christians, we can be blinded. Because perhaps we're not growing, perhaps we're not fully understanding God's way of life, His law. So we ask for the anointing of our eyes so that we can see. Because God's commandments, as we see, as we read here in verse 8, enlighten the eyes. They open our minds. They help us see God's way of life in a deeper way that others can't. It's what separates perhaps Paul from other writers or other uh, people in, in New Testament times where Paul saw Christianity in just such a way that others couldn't see it the way he saw it. David here sees God's law in a way that a far deeper way because his, his eyes were enlightened because he understood the differences of God's law and how, how deep they were. Because God's commandments help us see his way more clearly. They form the foundation from which we can understand his law, and then we build out from there. The third word that is used is the word precepts. It's it's the English word in the English Bibles is the word precepts. It's the Hebrew word pekudim. Pekudim. It is used 21 times in Psalms 119. So we notice in this long, long psalm describing God's law, how many times these words are used over and over because what David wants us to understand is God's law is so vast and so many facets to it that it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's not just the Torah. It's everything about God. So there's so many different ways he can describe it to us that he continues to use these various words. 
and it's used 24 times overall in the Old Testament. But it's only ever used, this word is only ever used by King David in the scriptures. This particular word, precepts or pekudim, is only ever used by the psalmist. And these refer to all the laws and the regulations enacted by God. Because the laws and regulations that God has enacted through his scriptures are part of the law. But before we look into Psalms 119, let's go back a few pages to Psalms 111, the 111th Psalm. And look at another use of this word pekudim, or precepts. various regulations that are enacted by God for his people to follow. Verse 7 of Psalm 111. The works of his hands are true, are verity and justice, and all his precepts are sure. This Hebrew word for sure is used not only in a sense of permanence and certainty, but also in a sense of building up and supporting. So these precepts, these pekudim that God are part of the overall concept of his law, act as a support structure for other parts of his law and his way of life. When we see these, these regulations or these, these laws, we see that they are sure, that they allow support for this way of life. His law edifies us, it makes us stronger, it offers a way of support for us internally. It helps us, again, as we saw with the word in the commandments, helps us to enlighten our eyes, open our minds. It acts as a solid foundation, much like uh, the youth study that was talking about the, the sandals and what the type of foundation they provided because we, they, we were sure on our footing. These precepts act in a similar way. It makes us stronger. It, it makes us able to withstand things that come our way. When we go to 119, Psalms 119, to see how David describes pekudim, or these precepts, we see in verse 4 that you've commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Because keeping of God's regulations require diligence. There's the overall concept of God's law that helps enlighten our eyes, that helps us understand that who God is and describes our Father to us. But part of that are the little tidbits of regulation that we, that we need to keep, that we need to look for. And they require diligence. When you go through the example of the, the children of Israel as they were learning of these things, very meticulous. You go through the book of Leviticus or the book of Numbers and you see the very meticulousness about how the offerings are described. And it's almost like you're reading it over and over, the same things over and over again. Because he says it, he's going to re-say it, he's going to re-say it again. You do this and you do this. And if you're going to do this, you do this and this and this. And it's repeated several times when you go through the law because it requires diligence. Following God requires diligence. It's not a one foot in and one foot out. Am I going to, you know, I'll, I'll be this way this week and maybe not so much next week. It requires tightness and diligence. But when we read verse 45, and again, we're reading these, these so many different ways to describe it because it really is a description of who God is. Verse 45, I will walk at liberty for I seek your precepts. While they require diligence, while it seems to be the, the bullet point parts of God's law. It provides liberty. And we actually seek it. When we understand how important these are in the overall awesome aspect of, of God's law and what it describes, we actually seek it. We want to know more. 
because we're sure, because we know that it offered us offers us true freedom. When we're living a life the way the Creator intended us for, to live, we have freedom. We're not we're not bound by this world. We're not bothered by uh, the left or the right. We're not blown about by things that happen to us. In verse 173, again, continuing to get this full picture of, of the law of God. Let your hand become my help, verse 173, for I have chosen your precepts. The next word that we'll look at is the word statutes. We've seen statutes several times. It's the word hukim, hukim, and it's used 21 times, again, in Psalms 119, and 126 times throughout the Old Testament. And it refers to the inscribed and acted laws. Now, why use all of these various forms for what amounts to be the same word or idea? In this case, the hukim were enacted by kings and rulers and were tangibly seen, written or inscribed by the king. So there's pekudim, and now there's hukim, because these were actual tangible laws that were inscribed by the king that could be seen. It was important that God revealed himself as their king. They lived in a, 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 they, they lived in a society that had kings. We see that as they traveled through their, their 40 years journey. We see after they crossed over into the promised land, they developed a system, a, a system of monarchy throughout uh, much of, of their existence. So they understood they were part, that part of their culture was one of monarchy. They understood how kings acted and how kings were law, law setters. And in this way, by referring to these, statu- these statutes, part of God's laws, these enacted, inscribed parts of God's law that God would write down, he could reveal himself to them as their king. They were looking for a king. Remember their, their comments to Samuel, if we only had a king? He was their king. When you followed his way of life, you don't need a king because we have our king. So as David continues to describe his law and uses this word statutes or hukim, he reveals, God, through David, reveals his kingship. That he is our king. We don't need another king. We have our king. Lands were ruled by kings in those days. And this was his way of revealing himself in a way that they could understand. Part of the law, part of understanding God, is understanding his written rules. Verse 64, Psalms 119, helps describe that for us a little more. The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. God's laws, his his enacted, inscribed laws, show us mercy. We hear about a God with too many rules that is unmerciful. When here David, in his vast understanding, his mature deep understanding of who God was, he sees God's statutes as merciful. Continuing on in verse 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Not only is he good, he does good. And he shows us as as our king, as our good king, through these inscribed laws called statutes. Verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. So again, this word 
for statutes, it is used mostly in terms of needing God to teach us these inscribed enactments and our need to search and learn them. Search for them and learn them because this way of life is about looking for God. We want to continue to look for him, to learn more about him, to become more in tune with him, to know what his way of life is. So we need to search. He's not going to just serve everything up on a silver platter for us. We're going to have to search for it. And part of asking him to teach us his statutes, teach us these inscribed laws as David describes them, are about searching for this. Much like a new Canadian must learn the laws of the land before applying for citizenship. There are tests to be, to be had. There are, there are laws that need to be, to be uh, passed, to be understood and passed to become a citizen of Canada. You need to understand basic Canadian law, basic Canadian history, basic Canadian geography. Much like that, to be considered a child of God, to, uh, under, to, to expand, to understand who God is, you need to understand the basics of who, what God's law is. And that's where these statutes come in. Other parts of the Old Testament, which we won't go take the time to for time's sake, this word is used as the word decrees, ordinances, customs, or appointments. And we see the regalness or the, the governmental terms that is used for these statutes because God's, God is our king. His way of life is a form of government. We are, uh, we are on our way to his kingdom, which by very definition is a form of government that we will live in for eternity. So it's important for us to understand God from this way of thinking, that he is our king, that he has a kingdom, that kingdoms have laws, kingdoms have rules. And again, less, less so about the, the nitty-gritty parts of it and the more greater mindset of who God is and what his way represents. Verse, let's go back to 19th Psalm. Again, go back there because they, are, they go hand in hand. Verse 8, Psalm 19. The first part, we read the second half when it came to the commandments, the mitzvah, but now we see the first half of verse 8. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. As our king, he establishes law. There's no argument. There's no debating with the creator. He, all of this is his. He sets the way of life. David simply describes his statutes as right. It's his, it's his creation. It's his rules. It's his laws. They're simply right. And it's up for us to spend our time learning and understanding what that way is. And when we understand, we rejoice. We recall perhaps... Uh, pets or children who are learning the rules of the house. When there are no rules, you can tell. And it's chaos. And we think that it's children or pets that are bad. It's really not children or pets. It's the people who are in charge that do not have, uh, that are not teaching the rules the right way. And we see the impact of youth or pets. And I can see it in both ways. When rules are learned and understood, we're going through a, a reteaching process of our God and getting all four of us, Lisa was always on board, I think it was the three of us that perhaps weren't, strict with how we treat our God. And it seems like we're being too strict, but he's the happiest little thing now. He just goes wherever we command because 
as was explained to, to us by someone else, he just wants to be told what to do. They live their lives wanting to be told what to do, and it makes them happy. So while it seems like we do our, our, our time ordering him around, once he, once he gets it, he now sits beside our dinner table in his bed and does not bother us. He sits there quietly because we tell him what to do, and it makes him happy to do what we want. Extrapolate that out. And this is why David says, the statutes are right. Learn them, and it gives you joy. Because it's all about learning God's way of life. Testimonies are another word that you would have seen as we work through this. And it is the Hebrew word edot, or edo, E-D-O-T. It's used 14 times in that the Psalms 119 and 22 times throughout the Old Testament. And it refers to God's standard of conduct. Again, just another way of explaining God's law. All these little words, are now when we go through and try to read the law, is it important that we go, okay, is this a statute or is this a, is this a testimony? Is this a precept? If it's a precept, it's this. Don't get bogged down in the fact that is this a precept or is it a statute or is it a testimony or is it a judgment? See this as just God, it's so important for us to understand who God is and become like him. That he's just trying to explain, David explains it from so many different angles. Testimony is God's standard of conduct. Verse 152, go back to the 119th Psalm and look at one verse 152 for this word edot. His standard of conduct. Statutes, as we read, were written and inscribed. Commandments were the, the ten. The Torah was the first five books, of which the ten were a part of. Here we see testimonies, simply God's overall standard of conduct. Verse 46. I will speak of your testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. He will speak of how God expects us to act before other kings. Why do those people act in a certain way? Before and we, and we can think back to the impact of foreign gods and foreign, foreign kings in the lives of the children of Israel and how they were to be a certain way. They were to act a certain way before all people. They were to be a standard set that people could look at the children of Israel and know these were God's people because they act a certain way. We're to be light to the world and salt to the earth because people should only, only need to see how we act. Our, our actions speak for God, speak for who we are. People, only, people need to see how we act, see that we're different, we, that we are different. We, it, it's a part of who we are. We don't do this. We don't swear at work. We don't steal time. We don't swear when we get angry. We don't need to tell them that. They simply see it because it is a part of who we are. It is a standard of conduct. It is a testimony that we live by, our standard of conduct. It acts as a witness, because God's laws act as a witness for him. We know who God is by the reading of his law. We've never seen him, we've never met him, but we know what he is and we know what he stands for, because he reveals himself through the various aspects of his law. This is why we are to proclaim it as witnesses and representatives of his law and his way of life, because we see what David said here. I will speak it before kings. 
I will tell others what this way of life is. Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Let's see what David says here about, in this psalm, about testimony. Keeping in mind that they refer to God's standard of conduct. So we're trying to figure out how to be made in the image of God, made after his likeness as we've read, what God expects of us. Testimonies play a part in that. Verse 7, the second half. We've already read the first half. We're back with the Torah. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Again, this word sure denoting the foundation that is set. That gives us a basis from which we can grow and extend. But it makes the simple wise. That points us towards 1 Corinthians chapter 1. About God's way of life and what God can do. When God can take simple people and teach them his way of life. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty and not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. It's all about glorifying God. David said, we read that he said, he reveals this to kings to show them what God's, what his testimonies are, that this, what this way of life is. When God can take simple folks who know nothing, who are, looked at, who are not great people as the world sees them, and create beings that are made in him, him, his image and after his likeness, he gets the glory. And we see here, as David wrote, that God's testimonies make the simple wise. We come in not knowing anything about God's way of life. And when he reveals himself to us through aspects of his law, lights go on and we start to see God for who he really is. Judgments are the next word we like to look at. And we've seen that listed several times. And it's the word mishpat. Mishpat. Again, used more than 20 times in Psalms 119, 23 in fact, and over 417 times in the Old Testament. And it refers to judicial decisions and is, is used in the Old Testament as determination. The words determination, manner, or discretion. When you read your English Old Testaments and you come upon these words like determination, manner, or discretion, that is this word for judgments, this mishpat. So again, go to the 119th Psalm. And just again... What we're getting at here is there's so many different ways that God describes his law to us, that it is so much more than a listing of rules and a description of who God is. And we'll get, as we wind this down later, we'll see how important that is to us. Verse 137, Psalms 119. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. And then verse 149. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness, O Lord. Revive me according to your justice. This is where God gets to be God. We recall, perhaps from last year, when we were talking about the one another 
verbs and one another terms in Greek that we touched on the word krino, anakrino and diakrino, which is the word for judge. And how come we read judge in Corinthians and it says don't judge and then it says do judge? Or Matthew 7 tells us don't judge or you will be judged. And it's an understanding of what this word judge really means. And here, this word for mishpat is God's prerogative. The, the Greek equivalent, so to speak, of krino, where that's, like I, as I like to say, above our pay grade. We don't get to krino because we're not God. God gets to judge. God gets to determine things. He gets to, to direct things simply because he's the creator. It's his way of life. And God gets to be God. And we see that here through the pen of David when he said, You're, and upright are your judgments. Your ways are right. We simply need to understand them and make them a part of our lives. As God, creator, king, and lawgiver, it is within his power to pronounce sentence. And that also includes suspending the law where he deems fit. And this is where judgments, God's judgments come in. We see examples in parts of the law. In Joshua 7, where the judgment was on Achan, the judgment placed on Achan was death for his betrayal at the siege in Ai. But we also see in 1 Samuel 21, which you can also note down, that David was allowed to eat of the showbread. You weren't supposed to eat of the showbread, but God deemed it okay. Why? David says here, Upright are your judgments. God deemed it right. Why? We can speculate. We can determine it's part of his mercy because his law is merciful. But at the end of the day, we don't really know why God deemed it okay for David to eat the showbread. We just know that it was. Because God is judge. And God deems what is right. We noted recently about Ruth, the Moabite who was allowed into the Israelite camp, went for ten generations. The Moabites were not allowed into the camp. And uncircumcised Gentiles were allowed to partake of God's way of life after Peter's vision in Acts 10 and Paul's deeper understanding and teaching with regard to that. So sometimes God makes judgments where he suspends his law. Does that give us a right to suspend his law? No. But God has suspended his law because it's his law. And that again Helps us, helps us understand who God is and his way of life and how majestic and perfect that he is. And how part of God's law is his overriding mercy. And David understood this and used this in his expression of this part of God's law with the word judgments. Psalms 19, again flipping back, we get to see here an important part of understanding these judgments. The judgments of the Lord, verse 9, are true and righteous altogether. So they are true and righteous. There's much a part of the law as all the other aspects of his law. Because they are true, God said so, they are true, and they are righteous. They define what right is. Back to, flip back, the 119th Psalm. Almost done flipping, flipping here. And we see a, a seventh, the second last word that we're going to look into here, and that is the word way. And it is the word derek, just like the English name derek, is the Hebrew word for way. And it's used 11 times, not as often, but it's used 11 times here 
in the 119th Psalm. And in fact, over 700 times in the Old Testament, this word derek is used. And when you, it's used in terms of an overall pathway or journey. So it's an overall guidance map or route map of God's way of life, for lack of any other synonym to use. And it's a pattern of life required by God's law. So we've seen the Torah, which is specifically those five books. We've seen the commandments, the ten. We've seen precepts. We've seen statutes, which are the inscribed written parts of God's law. We've seen an overall testimony or standard of conduct that God, God expects. We've seen judgments. Now we see God's law described as a, the way. And this really starts getting into the heart of what, this, what God's law really is. And that's an overall pattern of life that God expects us to live. Verse 1 of Psalm 119. Blessed are the undefiled in the way. We read the second half of that, but that way is just as much a part of the law when he describes it as the way. Verse 14. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. Verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts. So shall I meditate on your wonderful works. So the way is describing the law of God there. Verse 14, the way is describing the testimonies. Verse 27, the way is describing the precepts. We now get to see where this way is actually this thing that starts connecting all these aspects of God's law and describes it clearly not as a bullet point list, but an actual overall direction that we live, which is why David could be described as a man after God's own heart. David as a law keeper. Was he perfect? No. But the overall direction of his life was one that followed God's law. And it's an all-encompassing part of all the other aspects of God's law. Verse 30. I have chosen the way of truth, and your judgments I have laid before me. So we see the connection to truth and to judgment, this word way. Verse 32. I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. And this course, the English word course is the same word translated into way, this word Derek. Because God's law demands that we change our ways and conform to his. Recall those whose lives were cut to the heart in Acts 2, where they said, what shall we do? I'm, con- I'm confused now. I hear what Peter's saying, and I want to go one way, but I'm confused now. What am I to do? Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14. Recall this proverb that again talks about this word Derek or this word way. Verse 12 tells us there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So there's God's way, there's God's law, there's his overall pathway, and there's our way. And clearly, they're different. Clearly, they're different. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. This is why we can say that his law is simply not a set of rules, but the very nature of God himself. Because we see it described here as, as an overall, we see the word laws connected to it, precepts, statutes, testimonies, as we read through those scriptures. Finally, we get to the eighth word, and it is the word word, the English word word from the Hebrew word Imra. And it's used 19 times in that psalm and 37 times in the Old Testament. 
And it's not only God's actions, but his very speech is law. Obviously, throughout the New Testament, Christ is revealed as his word. Here in the Old Testament, this word is part of the law. It's his divine revelation of his law. Let's go to back to the 119th Psalm. So we see, much like the statutes, where his inscribed laws, this word word, this imra, is his divine revelation. His very speech. When God says, it is. And that in there helps us define who God, shows us how God's law defines who God is. Verse 11 of Psalms 119. Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So we see this this use of the word word, imra, as part of God's law that is written, hidden in David's heart. Because if he has it there, he will not sin. He will be able to avoid sin. That I might not sin against him. Verse 140 tells us, Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. So when God speaks, what he tells us to do is pure. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasures. So God's truth, all that he reveals to us is so precious, it is invaluable. Let's go to Matthew 13 and see this connection to treasure, to God's word, his way of life noted to us as a treasure. Matthew 13. And we see these two parables, verse 44, 45, and 46, that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. God's way of life is such a treasure to us when we understand what it really is. His law, much more, again, than a codifying of, of his rules, is when we see it as this grander description of who he is. When God speaks, it is. We won't go to Genesis 1, but we can see Imra in action in Genesis 1 throughout the, the, the creation account. And God said, and it was so. That's how Imra works. God says, it is. That's another description of God's majesty, his, his power as, as creator and, and the almighty. And Luke 10, Luke 10, since we're in the New Testament, go over to Luke 10. The connection to Christ as his word also reveals the Father. So the word, the Imra, as David understood it, helped reveal the Father. Here, verse 22 of Luke 10, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and the Father, who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Christ is the one we refer to in, in the Greek scriptures here as the Word also came to reveal the Father. So the Word is meant to reveal the Father. God's law is so far-reaching that it takes a lifetime to, to fully understand it. We can't get so confident in ourselves that his law becomes mundane 
or simply a set of rules because his law is not a set of rules. There are rules in his law. There are codified rules. There are spoken rules. There are judgments. But God's law is this great big concept that simply is his way of life. Let's go to Deuteronomy 5 as we begin to begin to wind down in a few minutes here. Deuteronomy 5. We've seen God's law described to us in so many different ways through the pen of the psalmist who had this deep understanding of what this law is. The Torah, the commandments, the precepts, the statutes, the testimonies, the judgments, the way, the word. That's because it's a part of who it just describes who God is. His way of life and what we need to do to be part of this covenant and to be part of this way of life. Deuteronomy 5 verse 28. Again, covering the part of Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law, we see the first four chapters talk about the history of the, the first generation and brings the second generation where they were. God then reveals his Ten Commandments to them again in chapter 5, and then we drop down to verse 28. Then the, Lord's, then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had a, such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that I might be well with them and with their children forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. Therefore, you shall t- be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall go to possess. When we understand what God's law really is, we're not afraid of it. We're not pressured to try to keep it, right down to a fine detail, because we understand it's simply a part of who God is. It's God's description of, of him. Let's go back to Proverbs chapter 3. The law is a word that generally connotes fear. You're driving on the highway and the sirens go behind you, your heart jumps. What did I do wrong? God doesn't want that from us. He wants us to understand that his way of life is good and we simply need to learn and follow. We read part of this earlier. Let's look at it again and see that Solomon, at this point in his life, understood the life-changing impact of the law, as we call it. My son, verse 1, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. We see this, what this law really represents here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. We see much of what we've read here, noted here by Solomon. That is a way of life. It's what defines who we are. It's what guides us when we wake up. It's the, the map that guides our lives. 1 Kings chapter 2. We asked earlier where Solomon learned this from. 1 Kings chapter 2. Solomon 
clearly understood at this point in his life what God's law really was, that it was a, a, a direction of our path. It directed how we walked, how we lived, how we, how we treated people, how we treated God, how we treated our fellow neighbor. 1 Kings chapter 2. Verse 1. Now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. I'm going to die. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. I'm going to die. You need to be a man. What does be a man mean? Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, the Torah, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. What does being a man mean? It means seeing God's law as we've seen David describe it. His law, his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, his testimonies. The law of Moses covers off the, the mitzvah, the commandments, and the Torah. It's everything. As followers of the covenant, the law is everything. It's nothing we need to be afraid of. It just is, it, it is who we are. Micah, we just got a couple more verses here. Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. God's law is not going anywhere. It is eternal. It's not done away. And it will be in place forever. Why? Because God is eternal. And God is forever. We can't change who God is. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe it says in Hebrews. It can never, the law can never be done away because God can't be done away. His law is like a beautiful canvas depicting all that we know about God himself. When we're trying to paint in our mind's eye who God is, he is his commandments. He is his testimony. He is his judgment. He is his word. He is his statutes, his precepts. And they're not going anywhere. It shall come to pass, verse 1, in the latter days. So we've read all about the former days. Now we see a future looking in the latter days. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. and shall be exalted above the hills. And peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come up and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways. And we shall walk his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples. And rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not live up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine. And under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Imrah. God's word. God has said, this will be. But we will walk in the name of the house, name of the Lord our God, forever and ever. He reveals himself to us by his law. And why is that important? What does that matter to us? His law is never going away. And it guides our paths. So let's go to finish up in John. Let's go to John 15. To see why it is so critical and important 
that we understand that before we start figuring out whether you're new in the faith or seasoned in the faith, reminding ourselves that God's law is so much more than the Ten Commandments, so much more than the technicalities of the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers, so much more than what we read in Scripture. It is his way of life. It defines who God is. And it's important for us to know who God is. And we learn that through his law. John 15. We read this last week. We'll touch on it again. As the Father loved me, in verse 9, I have also have loved you and abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. God's law teaches us who God is what his love is, how he expects us to act. Why is that important? Go forward two chapters to the 17th chapter of John. Verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, the Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to, to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God has given us his law in so many different ways because it is so important that we understand who he is because that is the key to eternal life. This life means nothing. This life is about learning his law, learning his way of life, so that we do have access to that first resurrection. We will be the first fruits, and we will have eternal life. Roy Bean knew the law, but used it for negative. He knew the law and cared not for it. He said that he lived his life in its flagrant disregard. We need to live our life in its complete and total regard. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.